My guest is Alan Viard. He's a resident scholar here at AEI, where he researches federal tax and budget policy. He's here today to discuss some of the tax ideas already emerging out of the 2020 Democratic presidential race, including much higher tax rates and wealth taxes. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I would have imagined, in fact, I did imagine that after the Trump tax cut was passed, that tax news would sort of quiet down for a while. We just had this major structural reform, and that would kind of play out over a number of years. And I don't know, maybe you would research some arcane topics, but no, we have <laughs> we have plenty of tax news to yeah, talk about. Yeah, we certainly here. do. I it's actually. Um, I think there's a number of reasons why the 2017 tax law did not kind of bring an end to tax policy discussion and, if anything, maybe reignited it. Um, it's a law that was passed uh, by on a party-line vote, and so the Democratic Party does not feel that this is a law that they really support or accept or that they even had any voice in crafting. And so inherently, that means, I think, that there will be challenges from the Democratic Party to that law, whether it's a question of scrapping it entirely or revising it or doing some other type of tax policy alongside it. Uh, but clearly, yeah, the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act adopted in 2017 is not yet a uh, accepted fixture of our tax system. Were there lots of efforts to repeal other major uh, tax reforms? I think obviously the first thing that pops in my head is the you know early 80s uh, Reagan tax cuts. That immediately after those passed, were there lots of efforts by Democrats to try to raise that tax rate back up? I, obviously, that became an issue in the 84 presidential election. But was it kind of a, a drumbeat of efforts to, you know, repeal that that tax law in some regard. You know, that's an interesting episode. Actually, after the Reagan tax cut was adopted in 1981, there was almost a bipartisan decision to scale it back to some extent. The deficits that emerged in the wake of that tax cut uh, were you know, viewed as being quite large. Um, and so Republicans and Democrats joined together to scale back some of the provisions, not the rate uh, changes, mm -hmm. but some of the business provisions in that tax cut were scaled back. And President Reagan signed uh, in 82 and in 84 and 85 and actually 86 and 87, well, 88 too. Almost every year that, that President Reagan was in office, he actually signed a, a tax increase, uh, usually relatively modest, and it was all really just a scaling back of that original tax cut. Well, was there ever a call for, let's go back to the, that, uh, I guess the top rate before that was probably 70%. It was, yeah. No, there was there was not a call for that. So that's a, a important point to make, that although there was interest in both parties in modifying some aspects of the 81 tax cut. Nobody said, let's just scrap it all together right. and go back to where we were. You know, the the Bush tax cut in 2001 and then the second Bush tax cut in 2003, you know, were also controversial. And uh, there were certainly efforts by uh, Democrats to modify those uh, tax cuts. And of course, in the end, uh, some of the tax cuts for high income households that were in that, those laws did not end up getting extended. Um, although the tax cuts for lower and middle income households that were in those laws did get permanently extended. So uh, there's really is a pattern, I think, that after big tax laws are passed, that there is some interest in modifying them to some extent or another. Well, there's considerable interest in modifying the Trump tax cuts. And we were mentioning uh, that 70 percent tax rate. One of the ideas floating around uh, in democratic policy circles is indeed going back to a much higher yeah. income tax rate. Uh, of uh, of seventy of at least seventy percent. Um, what is what would be the impact, or do we have a good idea what the economic impact would be 
of going back to that kind of rate. Yeah, so I think we have some idea, but we don't know for sure even how the proposal is intended to work. So today we have different tax rates for ordinary income on the one hand and for qualified dividends and long-term capital gains on the other. And so the proposal I think that AOC has put forward certainly would increase the top tax rate on ordinary income from 37 to 70%. Now, it's not quite clear what a proposal envisions for the capital gains and dividend rate. So that's something that's still to be filled in. We don't have a bill or anything like that, really just a uh, some remarks that she has made. But we can focus on the ordinary income rate, I think. Obviously, if you have a rate of 70% instead of 37%, you're going to create stronger disincentives to earn taxable income for the people who are in those high-income groups. So that means, on the one hand, they may work less. It means that they may save less. It means that they may engage in more tax planning or tax shelters in order to try to transform income into a form that is tax-exempt. You would expect to see all of those behaviors uh, increase if you had that dramatic increase in marginal tax rates at the top. And to what extent is what you just said about the potential impact, is that is disputed in the economic profession? I think there's very broad agreement about the direction and nature of the effects. There is considerable dispute about the magnitude, mm-hmm. and that's always where the rubber hits the road. I mean, how big or small are these effects? And the answer to that is often hard to determine, and it may depend upon the type of tax system that you have. Back in the early 80s, for example, we had a tax system that actually allowed a lot of opportunities at the top for tax sheltering and tax planning. And so pushing the rate up to 70% or having a rate of 70% before it came down really you know, supercharged the, those types of activities. Today, we don't have quite as many of those opportunities. And so you could make an argument that the 70% rate you know, would be somewhat less harmful. I don't know how much to make of that. Obviously, you still have a substantial uh, incentive to engage in whatever shelter or planning opportunities are available. You have disincentives to save. You have disincentives to work. I mean, those basic effects are always going to be uh, present. Uh, Because when I have heard these kinds of plans floated most recently, they seem they also they assume that there would be tax legislation to really limit the ability uh, to engage in in you know very tax planning and and not pay that pay that right. very, very very high rate. So I guess the issue is one: how much would it really raise a lot of revenue? And B, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, what would be sort of the the aggregate economic impact of that kind of kind of rate? It seems to me the the assumption is I'm not sure about the assumption about the revenue. But the assumption on the economic side is that it really doesn't make a difference and these rates can go very very high and not yeah. yeah well certainly some you know politicians are um seem to to have the view that you can raise these rates very high without any impacts i think that most economists you know would probably be a little bit more cautious on this and again economists definitely disagree about how big these effects are and there are some economists who say these effects are not really all that big or all that worrisome uh but i don't think they would dismiss them out of hand now you raise an interesting point about you know it ties into my 
my earlier point, that you could change the type of tax system we have at the same time they're raising the rate to 70%. You could further curtail the incentives, the, the opportunities to engage in tax planning and tax avoidance and tax sheltering. And so in some sense, that would, yeah, again, make the 70% rate a little more viable. Far from clear how politically viable you know, that would be, and we don't, we don't really have any detailed proposals from the people who are pushing the 70% rate as to how they would do that. I guess there's another point, too, that if you actually did crack down on a lot of the sheltering and the avoidance and such not, if you really were able to do that, that by itself would bring in more revenue from the people at the top. And so on the one hand, it would make the 70% rate arguably more viable, but then it maybe also would make it less necessary. Would it really be necessary to more than double the official statutory tax rate that high-income groups are paying while also taking away a lot of the tax preferences and tax planning opportunities that they have? Well, you know, maybe some policymakers would say, yes, we should do both. But I do think a lot of Americans would say, well, maybe that's not so necessary. If you're really making high-income people pay tax on all of their income, maybe the rate doesn't need to go up to 70%. Right. So so, so if, if you think that wealthier people should pay higher taxes, whether to finance some program you're interested in or because you just think – that 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 would reduce income inequality in some fashion. You just think those gaps are are are, are sort of morally, you know, re- reprehensible. If you want to have wealthy Americans pay more, what would be the most economically efficient way of doing that? Would it be raising that top rate? Would it be closing some of these loopholes? Would it, something else? No, I think in general it would be uh, the best way to start would be by trying to broaden the tax base and close some of the loopholes and preferences that exist. Now, I do think one has to admit that the scope for doing that may not be quite as great as people think. And a lot of that base broadening doesn't really um, extract a lot of money necessarily from the people at the very top. So, you know, if you really, really want to raise a lot more money from people at the very top, then you may in the end have to go with some type of rate increase. And obviously, there's an issue there to confront. I mean, is it necessary or appropriate to raise a lot more revenue from that income group or not? But if you do, then probably you would end up uh, raising the rate in the end. And there are other options, of course, which I've written about in the past, like completely revamping the tax system to make it a progressive consumption tax, for example. And on paper or you know whatever, that is certainly a very appealing way to try to raise revenue at the top. I think there's a lot of political obstacles to ever getting that done. And I've kind of uh, moved away from that idea, not because of any economic problems with it, but just because I question whether it will ever be politically feasible. Um, Just to get back quickly, uh, thinking about the economic impact of these uh, higher tax rates, uh, you said it's an issue of the magnitude. You know, everyone it's kind of agreed there'd be some impact. Some people think it'd be very minimal. Others think it'd be greater. What is sort of the key thing that the two sides are looking at differently that influences whether they think it have a big magnitude or, or, or a lesser magnitude? Like, where's the, the crux of that disagreement? That's a good question. Um, I don't think the disagreement is primarily about the 
labor supply response or how much you know, how it would change decisions on work effort uh, by this group. And it's not clear for everyone in that group that would be an important issue anyway. I think there's disagreement about the impact on saving and there is disagreement about the impact on this whole wide range of tax avoidance activities. And it's really hard to nail down that last one, I believe, because there's many ways that you can try to avoid or delay uh, taxes, and including some that you know tax lawyers are busy thinking up even now as we speak. And if you did have the rate go up, Obviously, there'd just be a premium on trying to come up with new avoidance strategies. And I think people, none of us really have a good sense of just how much, uh, what the scale of that would end up being. So I think that's probably a big disagreement. And there may not be much of a way to resolve that, frankly, unless, you know, you actually did raise the rate to 70 percent. And then I guess you would find out and, you know, maybe you would regret it at that point. But there, are there any lessons we can draw from previous periods where the U.S. had much higher individual tax rates, 70, 90 percent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so certainly. Are they applicable to today? Well, it's hard to, to know for sure. They surely have some degree of applicability. So we know that we had rates that were in the low 90s at uh, various points in U.S. history. And at that point, very few people uh, were paying those top rates. They didn't apply except at very high income levels. And there were so many opportunities for avoidance and sheltering under the tax system that we had back then that those rates really existed mostly on paper. And so they weren't weren't real. Uh, And so so what lessons should we draw for today? It's hard to say. Again, I think if you saw sheltering and avoidance taking place then, you would probably see it again if we push the rates up. But I do take the point that there probably is somewhat less scope for that in today's tax system than there was back then. And so you have to kind of take those lessons with a grain of salt. It does, though, I think, indicate the just the fundamental qualitative point, people do respond to incentives. And, you know, again, how big the response is, we don't always know. But people don't just sit inert when a change occurs in the incentives that they're facing. They will move to try to reduce their tax liabilities. Listening to some people talk, I'm not sure that point is widely appreciated as you might think. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. I, I do think that we've seen really in some of these democratic proposals a, I don't know, I think a avoidance of fundamental economic realities. There's a tendency to just completely dismiss incentive effects. There is sometimes a tendency to ignore budget constraints. There's a tendency to ignore the issue of whether the government will administer any given program in the benevolent uh, and uh, competent manner that the sponsors of the proposals are counting on. And there's just a lot of things that are being glossed over as proposals are put forward that you know may sound good at first glance, but that really need to be thought through a lot more. What is the level of glossing over do you see with another uh, uh, tax proposal, which has uh, gained a lot of attention, which is putting a wealth tax on the very rich? I think the, the proposal is uh, from Elizabeth Warren is uh, 2% tax on, a, uh, on, on on fortunes over 50 million. I think a slightly higher tax on something. 3% a year on fortunes over, on, on billionaires. What, so what are the trade-offs that you think are perhaps are not being uh, talked about with that idea? Yeah, well, there too. I, you know, actually, I, I have to say on that, the, on that proposal that some of the supporters 
actually have been at least a little bit more sensitive to some of the concerns that may arise in trying to implement that tax, although I still think they may not be giving them the full weight uh, that they deserve. This is an interesting proposal for a wealth tax. I really didn't expect this kind of proposal to come on the scene quite so soon, although I expected it to eventually emerge. I wrote in a 2013 paper here at AEI when I, on capital taxation that you know taxing wealth uh, was an idea that would not be implemented in the near term um, because of its uh, unfamiliarity and its con- potential constitutional difficulties. But I predicted that eventually uh, there would be interest in that tax. And now we certainly have seen a proposal put forward, although I would imagine we're still quite some time away from actually adopting anything like that. So wealth tax is really a way of taxing income from saving. And it's similar to an income tax in that respect, except that the rates are deceptively low. And so actually, if there's one point Point to emphasize, I think it would be that. I want to really get that on the record. Um, you know, the rates are quoted. Uh, some media stories, I guess, say two percent or three percent. The correct statement seems like a is de minimis two, rate. Almost, yeah, nothing. it almost seems like nothing because certainly a two percent or three percent income tax rate would obviously be quite low. But of course, the rate is not actually two percent. It's two percent per year or 3% per year um, in that proposal, depending on the size of the wealth. And that per year is absolutely critical. You don't need to put that kind of qualifier on an income tax rate. So if I have a 2% income tax, during the course of a year, my tax payments will be equal to 2% of that year's income. Over the course of a decade, my tax payments will be 2% of the decade's income because you have a flow of taxes being paid on a flow of income. But the wealth tax is, is just profoundly different. A flow of taxes is imposed on the stock of wealth. So the stock of wealth is taxed again and again year after year. So under the 2% per year rate, during the course of a year, you would pay 2% of your wealth. But over the course of a decade, you would pay approximately 20% of your wealth, you know, taking into account the fact that the wealth you know, could fluctuate uh, within that interval. Uh, but basically, the same stock of wealth is being taxed again and again, year after year after year. And so you have to try to translate those wealth tax rates into an equivalent income tax rate before you can truly understand them. The example I like to use is someone who's holding a long-term bond that's paying a fixed interest rate of 3% per year. That's about what long-term treasuries are paying right now. And so if you had a 2% per year uh, wealth tax, that would be taking 67% of the interest income that that bond is paying. The wealth tax would really work just the same as a 67% tax on interest income. And of course, a 3% per year wealth tax would work like a 100% tax. And so when you put that in there, you realize, okay, these are actually very high tax rates, higher than the rates that we observe in many of the other countries that have wealth taxes. I mean, there's not that many countries that have them these days, but the ones there are that countries do, that had them and they got rid of them. And they did, yeah. And, and the ones that do have them still, they generally have rates that are lower than 2 or 3% a year. They're often in the vicinity of 1% a year or a little bit more than 1% a year. So 2 or 3% should really be viewed as a very high rate per year that this proposal is calling for. And we were talking a little bit about incentive effects earlier. What are the incentive effects of this kind of tax? Because people will say, listen, Jeff Bezos, what does it matter if he has $150 billion, What, he wouldn't have built uh, Amazon if he thought he could, you know, he would yeah. $75 billion or $50 billion, that, the, that at, at some point, these effects don't matter? Well, so... 
we don't know a lot about the behavior of these groups. And so I, you certainly hear the argument, they may not be that responsive to incentives. And I don't know whether that's, you know, really right or wrong. But let me make this point, uh, which I think is important, that you are going to have a diminished pool of savings available from high income, from, from high wealth people, even if there is no incentive effect in the classical sense of the term. So if you look at the revenue estimate that Professor Saez and Professor Zuckman did for Senator Warren on her proposal and the assumption they make, they assume that the high-wealth households who are subject to the tax do not choose to spend more. They keep their consumption spending and their charitable giving the same. And so they're ignoring the possibility that, you know, with the return to saving being taxed so heavily, maybe you would choose to spend more and save less. But they're saying, let's perhaps assume... more political contributions. Well, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that kind of yes. <laughs> but let's assume that, but they say, so let's assume that they don't change their consumer mm-hmm. spending. Nevertheless, the stock of wealth in those high. Uh, wealth households still diminishes. Because suppose I'm sitting here earning a 3% per year return before tax, and then along comes a 2% per year wealth tax. If my spending and my giving stays the same, my wealth is only going to grow at 1% a year instead of 3% a year. And so after one year has gone by, the wealth is approximately 2% lower than it would have been. And after two years, it would be approximately 4% and so forth. And that happens even if there is no change in their spending decisions. Now, the point of this, of course, is not to say, you know, oh, heavens, you know, these people, they may be driven into poverty or something. How, you know, terrible this is going to be for them, you know, to to be paying this. No, I mean, obviously, they are, these are extremely, extremely affluent households, and they can easily afford to pay this. But the savings that this group has is a important part of the pool of savings that finances investment in the United States, business investment that uh, drives up productivity and increases workers' wages. Now, there is saving done by other groups. You can also borrow savings from abroad. So, is, Wouldn't that be the, 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 the counter-argument that the world, as you may have heard, is awash in capital that can be yeah. these investments and um, therefore you know, these pools of savings aren't perhaps as quite so critical? You do hear that point being made. And first of all, it's not clear that it's going to remain a washing uh, saving, even to the extent that it is now. And I don't, th- in my view, well, let me just say this. It's not really my view. It's, it's really economic theory that if we were to put more resources into business investment, you know, we will be increasing the standard of living in the United States in the long run. And so, yes, you can take the view, well, maybe we have enough investment. Uh, but in fact, you know, any additional investment would boost those living standards in the long run. So I don't think that's something we should too readily uh, give up on. Do, when, you hear, uh, when you hear these numbers that X number of people own X, you know, Y percent of wealth in the United States. It's usually a very small number of people. Yeah. Very, uh, what, what, what do you make of that? Do you think, well, okay, that's an interesting statistic, but uh, there's nothing, you know, I'm not really going to, that, that's not an important statistic to me and, as an economist. Yes, I, I guess I have a mixed reaction to that. It is true that wealth in the United States is highly concentrated. It's more concentrated now than it used to be, and it's more concentrated than it is in some other uh, advanced countries. You know, I don't know that I would say that the wealth concentration, you know, in and of itself is a good thing, but I'm also not sure that we should view it as some type of major problem that has to really be, um, you know, addressed in a in what could be an economically destructive 
way. There's an absolute imperative, I think, for the government of any democracy to make sure that all of its citizens have an adequate income and adequate living standards and that their basic needs are met. Um, and you know, the modern welfare state, I think, is just widely accepted as a legitimate role of government in a free and capitalist society. But so if someone tells me, well, people at the bottom really don't have enough, and I would say, well, that could well be, and that's a problem, and maybe we should give them more, and maybe you know, and we'll obviously need to get that from somewhere else. But if someone tells me, well, you know, I'm really concerned that like the top 0.1 percent, you have y percent of income or y percent of wealth, and you know, wouldn't it be better if that were lower? I say I'm not sure what the moral imperative is there for that, particularly if their savings are helping finance the business investment that drives long-run growth. Uh, before we jump out of that, because you've given me a wonderful lead-in to ask you about stock buybacks, before we jump out of this, uh, estate taxes, what would... What would you want to see happen there under a future tax reform? People say some people who are concerned about wealth inequality say that that's the better area uh, to do something. Just you know, raise those taxes uh, higher in some fashion. Well, you know, if your goal really is to get more from the people who have a lot of wealth, there is a lot to be said for trying to improve the estate and gift tax rather than launching some new wealth tax. It's easier to administer because you're only valuing people's property once in a lifetime instead of every year. Um, it, the estate and gift tax have been upheld by the Supreme Court as constitutional, while there is significant doubt as to whether a wealth tax would be constitutional, at least unless various modifications and add-ons uh, were done with it. So there really is a lot to be said. If you want to really try to take more money from those with high wealth, of using the estate and gift tax instead of uh, some new uh, wealth tax that we'd really be doing from scratch. Again, you have to come back to the question, I mean, is it an imperative that you extract more money from this group or not? Obviously, you have a number of people, almost everyone, I guess, in the Republican Party saying, well, the estate and gift tax actually should be abolished. Right. There actually is a theoretical argument for that. I don't think it's politically sustainable. I mean, I would tend to prefer that the two parties come together and try to agree. Is on the economic some... argument another pool of savings argument? It is. Yeah, that's the main argument, uh, really. Uh, the estate and gift tax today is actually very poorly set up. There, again, there's just a lot of avoidance opportunities in it. I've always been surprised that Democrats have not really put more of an effort in to try to crack down on those avoidance opportunities. It seems to me that would be a promising way to go instead of just jacking up the estate and gift tax rate or certainly bringing in this you know, new wealth tax out of nowhere. If I understand, to get the stock buybacks, if I understand the argument, it's that companies are not investing enough and they're taking uh, their savings from the uh, tax cut and they're just giving it back to shareholders, giving it back to rich people rather than to their workers or investing in uh, new plant and equipment, which might might boost productivity and the tax code. So one, they're not using that money the way people said they're supposed to use that money. And two, we have a tax code that encourages them to give money to shareholders, which apparently is a useless thing versus spending it on workers or, or, or equipment. Well, so first of all, yeah, we don't you know, nobody would realistically, I think, expect that companies would pay higher wages just because they have more money. And uh, admittedly, oh, think you see a lot that, of politicians exactly do call for that. But and, and, and to be fair, some of the rhetoric behind the corporate rate cut did unfortunately take kind of that tack. Uh, but of course, that's not how wages are set in a market 
economy. Wages are set based on the productivity uh, that workers have. Companies will pay up to the amount they're willing to pay up to the amount of the productivity that the worker brings uh, if it's necessary in order to get that worker. And in a competitive market, they have to pay that much in order to lure that worker away from other companies who are also trying to do the exact same thing and hire that same worker. So we expect wages to be set by productivity. And so the, the key to increasing wages is to increase investment. So that comes to your other point. People say, well, why are they spending this on buybacks or dividends instead of investments? But there's no reason whatsoever to think that a particular company paying a larger dividend or engaging in a buyback is going to reduce the total amount of investment that's done in the economy. All investments that have after-tax profitability uh, that is high enough to satisfy the return that savers are demanding should be done and in a well-functioning economy will be done. And there's all you know, various reasons why economies don't always work perfectly. But the idea that you fix any of those problems by restricting buybacks or dividends is really... Well, the argument is that, 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 they're being, that the tax code is distorting those decisions. Okay. So that's a... Uh, so first of all, the tax code does penalize investment. Um, and so how do you lower that penalty? Well, you either lower the corporate tax rate and the tax rates that applies to non-corporate businesses, or you introduce expensing or other types of more generous depreciation. And so actually, the 2017 tax law did both of those things. The other thing you can do is try to keep interest rates down, which can be achieved uh, by uh, by getting the deficit down. Unfortunately, that is not something the 2017 law did, quite the opposite. But that's how you encourage investment. And so, yes, the tax code does uh, penalize investment, but that really has has nothing to do with the dividends or the uh, or the buybacks. There is an interesting question as to the relative tax treatment of those two ways of getting money back to shareholders. And under current law, there's a slight preference in the tax code for companies to use buybacks instead of dividends. And some people have argued we really should try to make that, that because tax that's because of the capital gains rate and the dividend. Well, no. So the cap, it used to be there was actually a big preference for buybacks over dividends because uh, dividends were taxed as ordinary income. Buybacks trigger capital gains that used to have a preferential rate that dividends didn't get. Today, dividends and capital gains both get the preferential rate. That's been true since the 2003 tax law was adopted. And so today, the two um, mechanisms really are being treated fairly similarly. The difference, though, is a a subtle point about the fact that capital gains are only taxed when shares are sold. And so they still get more lenient treatment than dividends, which are automatically taxed every year. And so there's a slight preference for buybacks arising from that. I guess another point that was recently brought to my attention is that foreign stockholders don't pay U.S. income tax on capital gains on U.S. stock, but they do uh, usually pay some U.S. income tax on dividends from U.S. stocks. So there's actually there, too, with the foreign shareholders, there is a bit of a tax preference uh, for the buybacks over the dividends. Right. And so ideally, you would, I think you would want to try to, to neutralize, the, the you know, to make the treatment neutral across the two. It's actually tricky to make it exactly neutral. But, but do you think that differential is having a huge impact on corporate investment decisions. No, no. I I think it's having almost no impact on corporate investment decisions. It may be having a modest impact on how big buybacks are relative to dividends, uh, which I think is not, you know, that important of an issue. 
Right. I mean, if we, if we could make the tax treatment perfectly neutral, we should do it. But I don't think it's a, a priority. And it's actually not easy. It's really not possible to make them exactly neutral as long as you do have capital gains and dividends being taxed under these different regimes, you know, where capital gains are not taxed until you sell. All right. We're almost at the end, but so I'm going to shoot some questions and hopefully you give me answers that are brief, but not so brief okay. they feel like you have not answered the question. One, uh, capital gains, should should capital the capital gains tax rate, investment tax rate be the same as uh, tax rates from ordinary income? People, a lot of people are concerned about wealth inequality. Also point to that as a way yeah. of getting at that issue. Well, it's actually, it would be a total disaster to raise capital gains tax rates to ordinary income rates while continuing to tax capital gains only when assets are sold. You would have a huge lock-in effect where people were even more reluctant to sell and trigger their capital gains tax. If you really wanted to raise the capital gains rate, you'd have to change that method of taxing capital gains. You go to a mark-to-market system where you tax people every year when their share be- shares become more. Which is what the wealth tax people would do, right? Yeah. In a sense, the wealth tax is attempts to be a solution to that problem of saying, yeah, we're going to tax the wealth every year, even if you didn't sell anything and get a capital gain that would show up on an income tax return. Of course, you then have the challenge of figuring out what those assets are worth in order to compute a person's wealth. I mean, it's easy for shares of stock, harder for mansions and paintings. Would you be more interested in a uh, equalization of those tax rates, capital gains, ordinary income, if we had a much lower corporate income tax? Again, you'd still have this lock-in problem. So if you really wanted to equalize the rates, you would have to, I think, switch your, your the method by which you tax capital gains. I do think, though, it is quite true that when you have a lower corporate rate, that you certainly have somewhat more latitude to raise your capital gains and dividend tax rates. We're talking about investing in more equipment. Some people are concerned. If they're concerned about automation, they're worried that we're actually giving too much of a preference to companies investing in equipment that can replace workers, and they believe that there is not enough preference for investing in workers. What do you make of that issue? I mean, Bill Gates was talking about a robot tax, and it comes up. Should should how we tax or, or the kind of incentives we give for business investment or equipment investment versus investing in human capital? So the tax on capital is really a tax that's imposed, you know, in addition to the tax on labor. If you think about someone who's saving and investing their money, you know, out of, they would already have paid tax when that income was earned as labor income. And so the capital tax is really already a second tax on top of that. With respect to automation, the one thing we know with absolute certainty is that over the long course of history in the aggregate, having additional capital has made labor more productive, not less. I mean, it's just, you know, trivially, this is right. It's just so obvious that we scarcely even need to say it. Imagine any of us being sent back to the Stone Age and we're, you know, just to have some maybe some primitive tools and we're going to see how much we can produce instead of what we're able to produce with all the technology and the machinery that we have today. Obviously, we'd be far less productive. Nevertheless, it is true, of course, that particular workers can be displaced by particular types of capital. I think it'd be a big mistake for the tax system, though, to try to micromanage that and try to um, basically thwart technological progress in order to save those jobs. And that's just been a losing recipe all along. You know, people, when manufacturing arose, people said, oh, what's going to happen to the farms? All the farmers, you know, it's going to go away. Well, in a sense, that's true, right? I mean, farming used to be 80, 90 percent of economies centuries ago, and now it's only a few percent. And so, yes, we saw people moving from the farm sector to the manufacturing 
manufacturing sector, it was a disruptive movement. Uh, there were people who were hurt in that process. And hopefully you would have a social safety net to take care of them. We have more of that today than we did back when this movement happened. Uh, but would anybody st- sit here today and say, oh, I wish we had thwarted that from happening? Well, what about, what about, I wish we still had 90 percent right. of the population on the farms. Well, mate, what about repl- you know, re- you know, replacing the, the payroll tax, which looks like a tax on workers, getting rid of that and replacing it with something else, some sort of consumption tax? Would that be a more – would that address, the, you think, those concerns that we're giving some preference to? No, it really wouldn't address that concern. It actually could be a good idea. Consumption tax and a wage tax like the payroll tax are actually pretty similar to each other. But a consumption tax is better in some respects because it brings in consumption that people are doing out of capital that they have on hand um, and also um, on investments that yield really high uh, rates of return. So I think there is a lot to be said if you have a wage tax of trying to move to a consumption tax. I don't think it really addresses those concerns that you've been mentioning, though. It would also create a big problem on the Social Security payroll tax. I mean, today, Social Security benefits are computed for each worker based on the earnings they had over the years that they paid payroll tax on. And there's a lot of wrinkles and and features in that formula, but that's the basic link. And that's important politically. I think that the system is viewed as being a contributory system in nature. If you changed and tried to finance Social Security with a consumption tax, even though it'd be good in some respects economically, it really raises a big mess as to what you would do with the benefit formula. Uh, and finally, and uh, this is a question I'm sure some people are hoping we would have let off with, but we're trying to end strong, uh, the Trump tax cuts. What conclusions can we draw so far? Uh, let's talk about the business side as far as yeah. as far as their ability to inc- – which was the point to increase business investment and eventually productivity. Any conclusions that we can draw now that we're – I think it's hard to tell. Unfortunately, we may never know for certain because we can never observe what would have happened if the uh, tax cut had not been adopted. Uh, You can only see the path you took, not the path you chose not to take. So investment actually has risen since the tax cut was adopted. But of course, we're in a business cycle expansion. You'd expect investment to be rising anyway. So we don't know how much, if any, of that investment increase is due to the tax cut. You know, I my own view on this is that we have a lot of statistical evidence over the years from sophisticated studies that really try to control for other relevant variables that show that if you lower the cost of capital in economic jargon, if you make the tax treatment more favorable, that you do get more investment. And I guess I tend to take my bearings from that body of peer-reviewed research rather than trying to look at a particular episode like this and see what we can uh, can tease out uh, from. Right, because that's what you're trying to – because then you're trying to say, well, what if interest rates are doing something different? What if yeah, trade policy – Yeah, there's so many things, different? right? All these things are in flux. And so I think it's very hard to say. I mean, we will – you know, we will get some information, I think, as we as the, the months and years go forward. Uh, investment is the right thing to be looking at. So your, your question is dead on in that respect. You have some people who are trying to look at wages already and saying, well, have wages gone up? And I sort of understand that because some of the supporters of the corporate tax cut talked as if it would just instantly boost wages. And they even seized on those silly one-time bonuses and said, aha, wages are going up. But that doesn't make any economic sense. The wages rise gradually as a consequence 
consequence of the additional investment because the workers become more productive when they have more capital to work with. So the investment increase is what we would look for first, and then we would see the wage increase coming on the heels of that. So certainly investment is what we should look at, but no matter what you look at, you still have this challenge. We do not know what would have happened if we had not done the tax cut. We can only see what is happening with it. My guest today has been Alan Viard. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.